Hello, my name is Chris Flanagan. I'm a paediatric intensivist from the United Kingdom, and I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of Paediatric Emergencies. So in this series, I plan to cover some of the common paediatric emergencies you're likely to encounter in your local District General Hospital Emergency Department. I'm going to focus particularly on the critically ill child who needs intensive care support and try and provide you with an approach to managing them till the care is taken over by the paediatric intensive care team. So the information for these talks comes from a guide I'm currently writing entitled Waiting for the Paediatric Retrieval Team. So instead of going for the traditional approach of writing the whole thing before releasing it, I'm going to release it chapter by chapter in a combined video and text format. So you can find the accompanying text file in the description to this video. So once I've done a number of these, I'll probably put them together in an app or ebook. So um, the first emergency I'm going to deal with is acute asthma, and I'm going to start this off with a case. So we've got a six-year-old girl who attends the emergency department with a three-day history of cough and coryza, and a one-day history of increasing shortness of breath and wheeze that's unresponsive to her inhaled subutamol. Significantly over the last hour, her working breathing um, and respiratory decrease have increased, so she's brought into the emergency department by ambulance. From a past medical history point of view, she's had a number of HTU admissions in the past requiring treatment with intravenous salbutamol for exacerbation of asthma. So this puts her at a higher risk of needing similar treatment during this admission. Um, although her parents tell you she's never been admitted to PICU, she's been close to needing admission a number of times. And she's obviously a child with ATP with uh, a background of eczema and hay fever. Her regular medications include beclomethazone, Singular, and uh, Salbutamol inhaler are used on a PRN basis, and she doesn't have any known drug allergies. So you assess her using an ABCD approach. When you look at her airway, it's self-maintained. You look at her breathing, and she's tachypneic, with a respiratory rate of 60 breaths per minute, which is well above what you'd expect for her age. She also has signs of um, severe respiratory distress with nasal flaring, tracheal tug, and marked subcostal and intercostal recession. When you listen into your chest, there's reduced air entry right throughout her chest, probably fair air entry at best, um, and moderate wheezing with prolongation of her expiratory phase. So typical things you'd expect with a, an asthmatic's chest. Um, she's unable to speak in sentences and unable to manage a couple of words at a time. And her peripheral oxygen saturations are 89% on the 15 litres of oxygen rather than on the breather mask that you've put her on. So obviously severe signs of respiratory distress and the efficacy of her breathing isn't good enough as she's not able to maintain her oxygenation. You look at her circulation, she's warm and well perfused. A little tachycardic at 145 breaths per minute. Um, and we check the monitor to sinus tachycardia. Her blood pressure is acceptable at 102 over 66. From a disability point of view, she's alert but is agitated. Um, her pupils are equal and reactive to light. And her blood sugar is a little high at 8.2 millimoles per litre in keeping with the stress response. She's apyrexic. There's no rash or swelling that would be um, suggestive of anaphylaxis, and her abdominal examination is unremarkable. So you go on to manage her as 
per the combined BTS and sign guidelines for the management of asthma. So initially she is treated with continuous nebulized subutamol, 5 milligrams, and you add in some ipatropium bromide, 250 micrograms to the first three nebulizers, and then continue the ipatropium bromide every 30 minutes. Intravenous access is obtained, and she's given a dose of um, IV hydrocortisone, 4 milligrams per kilogram. Um, at the same time as starting the cannula, you take a, a venous blood gas, which on first looks appears normal. The pH is 7.355, CO2 of 5.5, base excess of minus 2.5, and a lactate of 1.7. Although actually the normal CO2 is a worrying sign, because you'd expect somebody working so hard to breathe and breathing so quickly to blow off all their CO2. And despite all that, she, her CO2 is normal. So don't be reassured by this. This is actually a sign that she's relatively sick. So as she's made no improvement uh, with nebulized therapy, you um, load her up with some intravenous salbutamol and she's given a dose of 15 micrograms per kilogram by slow intravenous injection over 5 to 10 minutes, followed up by a continuous infusion starting at 1 mic per kilo per minute. So after 10 minutes she hasn't made any signs of improvement, so the salbutamol infusion increased up to 2 mics per kilo per minute. Over the same time period um, she is also given a, a load of intravenous magnesium sulfate 40 milligrams per kilogram um, by slow intravenous infusion over 20 minutes. And as she's had both the magnesium and the subutamol with no improvement, um, aminophilin is decided to be started. So this is started with a loading dose of 5 milligrams per kilogram over 30 minutes and then continued on with an intravenous infusion of one milligram per kilogram per hour. So despite all this, um, she her breathing hasn't really improved at all. She remains tachypneic with a respiratory rate of 64 breaths per minute. She still has signs of severe respiratory distress. When you listen into her chest, her wheezing has actually become quieter, um, and her, her entry, which initially was fair to poor, is now poor. So the quieter wheeze and the reduced air entry are now a sign that she's actually shifting less air with each breath. She is hypoxic with saturations of um, 86% in 100% oxygen and is now becoming increasingly drowsy. Um, our blood gas is repeated, which shows a pH of 7.112, PCO2 of 10.9, base excess of minus 4.9, and a lactate of 4.1, so a mixed respiratory and lactic acidosis. So a decision is made to intubate and ventilate her. So now I'm going to talk you through how you would manage a patient like this should she present to your emergency department and how you would go about stabilising her prior to the arrival of the paediatric intensive care retrieval team. So I'm going to do this using a systems based approach, so let's start with the airway. So the indications for intubating an asthmatic include life-threatening features that are refractory to standard treatment. So these include a silent chest, oxygen saturations below 92%, cyanosis, poor respiratory effort, hypotension, altered consciousness or exhaustion. So our patient fulfills a number of these criteria. Um, importantly, I haven't mentioned blood gas criteria because the decision to intubate and ventilate an asthmatic should be a clinical one. 
although obviously looking at it on the blood gas our patient has, that would indicate that she does need intubation and ventilation, but isn't required for making the decision and shouldn't delay the decision. So importantly in asthma, the obstruction to urine flow is below the level of the trachea. So actually intubating the patient isn't going to fix the problem and is likely to make things worse initially. So when you intubate an asthmatic, you should expect to struggle to ventilate them following intubation. You should expect to prepare for Ehrlich's and expect cardiovascular compromise as um, the lungs become increasingly inflated. There's increasing difficulty getting the air out. It's going to impair venous return to the heart. So your preload is going to decrease and the patient is going to struggle from a cardiovascular point of view. So it's important to note that a high percentage of asthmatic deaths occur during or immediately following intubation. And actually by the time they've reached paediatric intensive care, their risk of death is relatively low. So it's important at this stage you call for senior help, which should be a consultant anaesthetist or an intensivist. And if time allows, you should discuss the case with PICU prior to intubation. However, you shouldn't delay intubation for the patient in extremis. You should prepare resuscitation drugs in volume um, prior to intubation. And like any sick patient, they should be pre-oxygenated prior to intubation. As I've already mentioned, switching from negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation is going to significantly increase the air trapping in the lungs, causing lung hyperinflation and impairing venous return. So if you're anticipating this, you should volume load the patient. And I would normally give 10 to 20 mils per kilo of normal saline prior to induction. Um, like any sick patient, they should have a rapid sequence induction performed. And for me, the ideal drug is ketamine due to its bronchodilatory properties and cardiostability. And uh, the choice of your muscle relaxing between succinethonium or an RSI dose of rocuronium is really up to the operator. But the intubation should be done by an experienced person. This first pass success is key. And um, a cuff tube should be used in all cases. This is a child you're going to need high pressures. You're going to struggle to ventilate and you don't want to be upsizing a tube at a later stage. So I've already mentioned that um, intubating the patient is going to significantly increase the risk of air trapping. And what commonly happens is after intubation, the intubator's adrenaline is high and they will normally hyperventilate the child subconsciously. So doing this to an asthmatic patient um, is highly dangerous and it's a common reason for them actually becoming cardiovascularly unstable and actually arresting. So knowing this, it's really important that um, following intubation, the patient is ventilated slowly. You watch the chest and make sure they're fully expired before giving the next breath. Because if you haven't ventilated this patient normally, they will become unstable. From a ventilator point of view, um, we should generally use a pressure mode. The decelerating waveform of a pressure mode of ventilation results in a generally lower peak pressure for the same mean airway pressure compared to a volume mode. Um, you generally do need a high peak pressure. Um, however, if possible, you try and keep the plant pressure less than 35 centimeters of water. Though this is often not possible in the initial period following intubation and ventilation. Um, I already said air trapping is one of the big problems that asthmatics have, and you need to generally ventilate them at a much lower respiratory rate 
than you would do for a child of the same age with another um, lung problem. So we're talking about rates of about 10 to 15 breaths per minute. And to do that, you need a relatively long IT ratio. So normally you'd be using an IT ratio of about 1 to 2, and sometimes 1 to 1 in it. Whereas in an asthmatic, you're going to use 1 to 3 to 1 to 5, allowing enough time for expiration for the breath to get out before another breath comes in. So for our patient, I would use an inspiratory time of one second and an expiratory time somewhere between three to four seconds. So resulting in a respiratory rate of somewhere between 12 and 15 breaths per minute. So if your ventilator has a display of flow against time, this should be monitored to ensure that expiration has finished prior to uh, the initiation of the next breath because if it hasn't, breath stacking will occur. So if this is the case, um, you just need to lengthen the ITE ratio. The other useful thing to follow um, will be capnography because the, the pattern you get with capnography will give you an indication of um, how much airway obstruction is going on. So the problem in asthma is actually getting air out of the lungs. Um, so the patients have their own auto-peep so generally you should set the PEEP at a low level, um, so less than 5 in a paralysed asthmatic. You, it can be argued later on that when the patient is self-ventilating you shouldn't match their level of auto-PEEP. But let's keep things simple. In the initial stage in a paralysed asthmatic patient, PEEP of around about 4 to 5 should be appropriate. Um, ventilating at such low respiratory rates um, will cause hypercapnia. And we should tolerate this hypercapnia, it's called permissive hypercapnia. And generally we would allow the CO2 to go up to 14 um, while keeping the pH above 7.2 using buffers such as THAM or bicarbonate. And as bicarbonate works initially by increasing CO2, THAM is probably going to be better in the first time. Because if we try to ventilate these children too hard, we'll just have problems with air trapping and air leaks. Um, from an oxygenation point of view, we should be aiming for oxygen saturations of um, 88 to 92. Um, initially, the FiO2 may be high, but where possible, we should try and keep this less than 60% um, in keeping with a lung protective um, strategy, as too much oxygen is toxic to the lungs. So a chest X-ray should be routinely performed following intubation to confirm the endotracheal tube position. And this should be repeated again if there's any acute deterioration to rule out a pneumothorax. Um, if the skill and expertise allow, um, bedside ultrasound may actually allow rapid detection and treatment of a pneumothorax, as often much quicker than doing a chest X-ray. Um, so equipment should be available in the bed space to perform bilateral thoracocentesis and chest strain insertion. Um, as the risk of pneumothorax in these patients once you ventilate them is high. Um, and if there is any pneumothorax detected at any stage, it must be drained prior to transfer. So from an access point of view, um, the minimum required uh, is two peripheral cannulas and an arterial line. The arterial line is important to allow rapid detection of hypertension from air trapping or pneumothoraces. And really a central line should only be required for, for transfer initially um, if the patient is needing vasoactive drugs. Access is difficult 
um, or they require a strong potassium infusion, uh, in which case the femoral site using ultrasound would be the preferred approach. So with these patients, you should expect a sinus tachycardia. All the uh, bronchodilators thereon tend to cause this. However, the patient is also at high risk of arrhythmia from hyperkalemia, um, from all the um, intravenous bronchodilators. So it's important that they have continuous ECG monitoring. If the patient does have any cardiovascular instability, as we already mentioned, it's likely to be due to reduced preload secondary to raised intrathoracic pressure, either from breath stacking or pneumothoraces. So if cardiovascular instability does occur in a ventilated asthmatic patient, your first course of action is to just disconnect the patient from the ventilator. So if you hear a hiss of air at this stage, then breath stacking has generally been the problem. And actually that's air escaping and the lungs deflating, um, allowing the venous return to the heart to improve. The blood pressure should improve quite quickly. If it doesn't, you can consider manually compressing the chest to try and squeeze the air out of the lungs. Um, it can be argued whether this should or shouldn't be done um, because actually that, that action of squeezing the chest does increase the intrathoracic pressure and so for the initial period prior to the air being expelled from the lungs will it reduce the venous return further and could cause further deterioration. So my initial approach would be just to disconnect the patient initially. If that improves things, fair enough. And if it doesn't, I would consider manually compressing the chest. Um, at the same time as these manoeuvres are going on, the patient is often being administered fluid bolus to again improve the preload to the heart. Um, and if these manoeuvres don't rectify the problem, attention pneumothorax should be excluded. Other causes for cardiovascular instability include the, the drugs that were given, and both magnesium and the volatile anaesthetic agents will all cause vasodilatation and contribute to any cardiovascular instability. So if after um, supporting the circulation with uh, volume, really light and treating breath stacking, um, you do need to support the circulation. This can be done with either adrenaline or noradrenaline, depending on the individual hemodynamics. Both of these drugs can be given through a peripheral or interosseous line um, as a dilute solution initially while central access is being obtained. And the simple way to do this is to make up one milligram of either of the drugs in 50 mils of normal saline. And if you run this at a rate of 0.3 times the weight in kilograms, mils an hour, this will work out at 0.1 mics per kilo per minute which is a reasonable starting place. Um, each of the drugs have their own advantages and disadvantages. Um, the particular advantage of using adrenaline in these patients is that the beta effects will contribute to the bronchodilatation. And in fact, I've actually used adrenaline infusions when I've been struggling with difficult asthmatics, even if they've had normal blood pressure. Um, the disadvantages of using the adrenaline are that it's going to increase the salbutamol-induced tachycardia is going to increase the risk of arrhythmias and increase the risk of lactic acidosis. But it's probably going to be your drug of choice um, if you're struggling from a cardiovascular point of view with an asthmatic. From a, move on to the disability. From the point of view of keeping these children asleep, ketamine is the ideal drug um, due to its bronchodilator properties. 
um, I would tend to start with another gram per kilogram per hour and then titrate this to effect um, with the normal range being between 0.6 to 2.7 milligrams per kilogram per hour. And you often do need to add a bit of midazolam into this um, at the dosing range of 1 to 4 mics per kilo per minute. The child should be kept paralysed um, and I would use a rocky uranium fusion with a range of 0.3 to 1 um, milligrams per kilogram per hour. Um, and that's to cover the initial stabilisation and transfer to a PICU. However, once the child has gone to the PICU, um, paralysis should be used for the minimum amount of time necessary, as these kids are at high risk of critical illness, uh, polyneuropathy and myopathy. Um, importantly, you should avoid the use of morphine and atrocurium, as both these drugs have potential for histamine release and risk worsening bronchospasm. If you don't want to use ketamine as your first-line drug, um, fentanyl is a suitable alternative and you can always reserve ketamine um, for those patients who don't respond to standard treatment. From a sepsis point of view, um, we wouldn't routinely administer antibiotics to children with asthma even if they're requiring intensive care admission. However, if there's any signs of um, sepsis or secondary um, lung infection, then antibiotics should be started. From a fluids point of view, um, like any paediatric intensive care patient, they're at risk of syndrome of inappropriate ADH secretion. So intravenous fluids should be restricted, and I use 80% of maintenance. Um, and we should use isotonic fluids. Um, so my preferred choice would be 0.9% saline, with 5% dextrose and 20 millimoles of potassium per 500 mils. As we're going to be keeping this patient muscle relaxed, the bladder should be catheterized and urine output monitored. The patient should have a nasogastric tube inserted, which should be aspirated to move any air from the stomach, which could be splinting the diaphragm, and then the tube should be left on free drainage. From a lab's point of view, I would routinely check a full blood picture, urine electrolytes, calcium, magnesium, CRP, blood gas and lactate. Um, on all these patients um, when citing the initial cannula. Um, a blood culture should be performed if antibiotics are being started for secondary infection and theophylline levels should be taken in at the start if a patient on an oral theophylline or four to six hours after starting an aminophylline infusion. Um, potassium levels should be monitored frequently um, via the blood gas um, and preventative measures um, instituted in all patients on intravenous salbutamol, um, even if the potassium levels are normal. So this should be done by maximizing the potassium content of the intravenous fluids, um, and the maximum safe um, peripheral potassium concentration is 20 millimoles per 500 mils. So even if the potassium levels within the normal range or the high normal range, and the patient's on intravenous salbutamol, I would still add 20 millimoles to a 500 mil bag because I'm going to anticipate the potassium is going to fall. Um, once the airway has been secured and the nasogastric tubes in situ, um, enteral potassium can be given via the tube, although um, absorption may be unreliable. So um, both aminophilin and magnesium infusions um, are compatible with maintenance fluids containing potassium, so these can be run um, on the same cannula as the maintenance fluid. Um, however, the compatibility of salbut salbutamol with potassium-containing 
fluids uh, is on the one, so you're going to need to use a separate line from the subutable. If, despite the above measures of maximizing the potassium on the maintenance fluids and internal potassium, you're not able to maintain the potassium levels above three, um, or if it's continuing to fall, um, you probably need to set a central line and start a concentrated potassium infusion. And the normal range for that's 0.2 to 0.4 millimoles per kilo per hour with ECG monitoring and RD levels of the potassium. Um, so hyperglycemia is relatively common in these patients due to a combination of reasons. You've got the stress response, they've had some steroids and they're on subutamol infusions. However, um, this generally shouldn't be treated with an initial sliding scale outside the PICU environment. So I now want to cover the drugs that are used in a little more detail, as this is where some of the common mistakes are made. The first drug I want to look at is subutamol. Um, and just to cover the, cover the normal dosing, so um, it's often given as a loading dose, 5 mics per kilo if you're less than 2 years, or for somebody 2 years and older, it's 15 mics per kilo, up to the maximum dose of 350 micrograms. And this is given by slow intravenous injection over 5 to 10 minutes uh, with ECG monitoring. So this should be followed up by an intravenous infusion, starting at 1 microgram per kilogram per minute. When you look at the dosing range for subutamol, you'll find that it's uh, 0.5 to 5 mics per kilo per minute. I would recommend that you don't exceed um, 2 micrograms per kilogram per minute, um, and that's because with doses above 2 mics per kilo per minute, you get significantly more side effects of tachycardia, lactic acidosis, and hypokalemia with no or minimal therapeutic benefit. Um, so really the side effects outweigh any additional benefit that you're going to get. Probably the one of the key learning points in, of this talk, uh, one of the points I really want to stress, is that the normal adult dosing range for subutamol is 3 to 20 mics per minute. So it's mics per minute rather than mics per kilo. So if you had a 120 kilo adult coming in, they would get somewhere in the range of 3 to 20 mics per minute. If you take your average five-year-old child weighing 20 kilos and start them on the normal starting dose of one mic per kilo per minute, you're already at the adult maximum dose of 20 mics per minute. If you take an 11-year-old weighing uh, 40 kilos and put them on two mics per kilo per minute, which I've said is generally the upper range I tend to use, they're going to be on 80 mics per minute, so that's four times more than the maximum dose you would give to an adult. So at these levels, you will get subutamol toxicity, um, and it's often seen within an hour of starting the infusion. So my personal preference is to generally limit the subutamol to 20 mics per minute, which is six mils an hour of a standard uh, infusion of subutamol made up at uh, 10 milligrams. And 50 mils. Um, Aminophilin uh, is normally given in a loading dose of 5 milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum dose of 500 milligrams um, by intravenous infusion over 20 minutes again with ECG monitoring. If the patient is on an oral theophylline you should admit the loading dose and take a theophylline level prior to starting it. Um, and then you should following the loading dose 
um, and maintenance infusion should be started at off one milligram per kilogram per hour if the child's less than 12 and for those 12 years and older 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour um, and you generally um, should check at the ophthalm level four to six hours after starting the infusion due to the narrow therapeutic index of the drug um, and maintain the ophthalm level within the range of 10 to 20 um, milligrams per litre. Um, and the third commonly used drug um, in the initial period with the an asthmatic patient is uh, magnesium sulfate. Um, this is given in a dose of 40 milligrams per kilogram um, by slow intravenous infusion again over 20 minutes um, and the maximum dose that we normally use in this is 2 grams. Um, so which of these three drugs should you give first and what order should you give them in? Well the current guidance don't really make any recommendation um, as to which you should do. My personal preference is to give magnesium as my first line drug. Um, if the patient's not too bad and needing a little bit more than inhaled therapy, I'll often give magnesium alone. For example, with our patient presenting with her history um, at, at her uh, clinical examination on presentation, I wouldn't expect magnesium alone to get me out of trouble. So while hanging the magnesium, I would also be starting some sambutamol. And for me, aminophilin comes in to those patients who haven't responded to the magnesium um, and sulfitamol that I've given them. So it's the third drug um, I would use. But like I say, there's no um, recommendations in the guideline as to which order you should use these drugs in. And it's going to be up to your um, local institute's preference. So um, intravenous hydrocortisone is normally given in a dose of 4 milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum dose of 100 milligrams and that's given every six hours. Uh, and that's generally converted to oral prednisolone whenever the patient is stable and able to tolerate um, internal medications. Um, my preference would be to give uh, intravenous hydrocortisone to all patients um, requiring intensive care, even if they've had intral steroids. Um, and that's due to unreliable gastric emptying in critically ill patients. So now I want to come on to refractory asthma, you've done everything that we have recommended but the patient still isn't improving or you're still struggling with them. So I think the first key thing to mention here is that you should speak to the retrieval team for your local PICU for advice. Um, the first thing I would probably do is use a volatile anaesthetic agent. So I'd put the patient on the anaesthetic machine and give them some sevoflurane. Um, and it will cause bronchodilatation, um, but also vasodilatation. So you'd need to be prepared to support the cardiovascular system with um, vasoactive drugs when you're doing this. And you might want to reduce other sedating agents. Um, generally, if this is going to work, you should get a response within about half an hour. Um, the other thing that you can do is give more magnesium. Um, so we often give a, a loading dose of 40 milligrams per kilogram um, and then you can either give further bullets to 40 milligrams per kilogram or start them on a continuous infusion. If you want to go for the continuous infusion, the normal starting dose is 30 milligrams per kilogram per hour um, with frequent monitoring of the magnesium levels, aiming for certain magnesium levels of 1.5 to 2.5 millimoles per litre. And if you are going to drive the magnesium levels up this high, um, as well as getting bronchodilatation, you're going to have problems with uh, vasodilatation. 
so you should be prepared to support the cardiovascular system with vasoactive drugs. And in this particular scenario, the ideal drug for doing this is probably going to be adrenaline. And that's due to adrenaline's beta effects um, also contributing to bronchodilatation. And in fact, I have used adrenaline infusion um, for this particular purpose in a patient with uh, normal blood pressure and uh, refractory asthma. So really all the treatments we've used so far have focused on bronchodilatation um, and that's only really one of the pathological processes of asthma um, which includes uh, bronchoconstriction, um, airway inflammation which you've treated with the steroids and the third pathological process is mucus production and that's where these next two therapies come in. So some people would actually argue that by the time you've intubated, ventilated and paralysed an asthmatic patient, um, the actual process of bronchospasm um, will have been treated by the paralytic agent and that any ongoing wheeze and register entry is actually related to mucus plugging. Um, and this is why um, DNAs can be helpful um, as it works as a mucolytic agent. It can either be given by nebulizer or instilled directly into the endotracheal tube. Um, and we don't use a dose of 1.25 milligrams for children under 10 kilos and 2.5 milligrams for children above 10 kilos. But um, this should be used with caution uh, as it can also cause bronchospasm. Um, this is often combined with um, bronchoscopy um, in a PICU environment. While the expertise to perform bronchoscopy outside of a tertiary hospital are likely to be available, um, DNAs may be appropriate, but I probably recommend if you're thinking of doing that, like any of the cases of refractory asthma, um, you should discuss any therapeutic options with the PICU or paediatric retrieval team. Um, so the next therapy I want to mention um, is Heliox, um, and it's probably not going to be helpful to you although I thought I should mention it. So Heliox is a low-density gas which improves airflow by switching turbulent flow to laminar flow, therefore increasing the amount of flow of gas. Um, its use is going to be limited by its availability. It's not going to be available in most district general hospitals. And also the patient's um, FiO2 requirement is going to preclude its use. So it's generally available in 21% uh, oxygen with 79% helium or 30% oxygen with 70% helium. Um, and often the patients um, that are needing intensive care support need more oxygen than this. And if you add any um, additional oxygen to the heliox, you lose its uh, therapeutic benefit. So it's generally um, not going to provide any help to you, but I thought I should mention it for completeness. So the final therapy that I want to mention for refractory asthma is extracorporeal life support. Um, this is generally reserved for um, cases where all other treatments have failed. Um, although children candidates for this reason generally have quite a good outcome compared to those who go on to ACLS for other reasons. So it's important that you keep the retrieval team up to date with uh, progress so this option can be considered um, as this will influence where the child is transferred to and actually whether a team needs to go out and cannulate locally. 
So I hope you find this uh, talk useful. If you have any questions or comments, um, please leave them for me and I'll try and get back to you on them. Um, please have a look at the text file um, to which there's a link in the description. And thanks for listening.